uh, Pastor Debbie mentioned, uh, this is the last time I'll be preaching uh, here um, for a little bit. Um, next week, I'm going to a nerd conference in San Diego. And so uh, it's Bible and theology people come and talk for four or five days. It's really stimulating, I'm sure. Um, but it'll be great. So uh, um, our DS will be here, Scott Shaw, to preach. And then on the 1st, uh, Pastor Trent uh, will be here, and I'll just be here to be in support. So um, uh, this is my last time preaching, but it's been a joy to be with you all. Um, for the third time, uh, it was in 2010 and 14 and 19. The next time can be 2045, maybe, after we're all dead. It'll be exciting. Maybe he's in heaven again. But no, I'm, I'm really thrilled um, for Pastor Trent's coming and Lynn. Uh, it's, uh, they're a great couple and you're a great church. So thanks for the way that you have uh, embraced me again over this, these past few months. Uh, thank you, Pat. And so it really has been a joy to be here. So uh, we are in Luke uh, continually. And um, uh, remember, we are, we've marched all the way uh, from Jesus, kind of wandering uh, from Galilee to moving to Jerusalem. Now we're in Jerusalem. Recall last week, the text we skipped over was Palm Sunday. Uh, the text also we've skipped over is, is Christ weeping over Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will play a prominent role in our text today. Um, but Christ was re- weeping not because there was Roman occupation. Christ was weeping over Jerusalem because the sense of the people, of many of the Jews, had become lost. And it wasn't a sense that they were occupied, that they had been lost to God and lost in their sin. Uh, the end of chapter 20, the kind of verses we skipped over between our last text and our text today, um, Jesus challenges folks to watch out for those in authority, often authority in the church, um, who've been cheating others and, and want to have a Christianity simply to be seen. You recall in the great text we had on this was on that Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee loved to be loud, show off the great religiousness of his life, and yet, in the end, he was not justified because he wasn't asking God for anything. Um, and not of you, but those other Christians, you watch out for them, right? Uh, when our Christianity is about a show, but it's not what's going on in our hearts. Um, and then the beginning of chapter 21, and our text will be chapter 5 later. But the beginning of uh, the chapter 21 is this great, small, little passage. And they're in Jerusalem, and they're the temple. And there's someone who is rich. There's a poor widow, two individuals again, and Luke does this often, right? Two different kind of polar opposites. And we know, again, in Luke, having riches is not awesome, right? Um, But again, this rich person is giving an offering. It's wonderful. Um, But this poor widow is getting offering. And he says, this is Christ saying, the widow has given more because she gave out of her poverty rather than the rich gave out of their spare change. What do we give God out of? Uh, my dad drove me here today so I could sleep on the way here. I, I always have to usually sleep when I'm driving. It's not a good idea, but uh, it's helpful when he's driving me here. Um, one of the things uh, that my parents taught me early on was the importance of tithes and offerings. And um, one of the things I would encourage you, uh, and the tithe is simply this. Um, it's ideally about a 10% of what you bring in your household. I know many of you regularly give tithes and offerings. Um, and so without guilt, I would just tell you, if you're not giving, you need to start, right? Um, the tithe is a great blessing that we are reminded that all that we have is God's. And it's a great gift. I know sometimes financially things are tight, and I know families for whom they just gave a dollar a week. And so in some regard, I, I don't know what you can afford, 
But I know this, um, it's a place where do you trust God? And of course, tithing 10%, the offerings are over and above that. And so I would encourage you, um, as you think about your own life, as you think about your world, um, your finance in particular, the question is this, can God even be Lord of our finances? And so I would say I have, I have no problem speaking and teaching and kind of commanding folks to do this because a great promise from God. The God promises to test God on this. Um, so I encourage you, um, again, to make tithes and offerings a regular part of your worship. Uh, my parents instilled in me a discipline long ago. There were eras when things were great, and times when Dad lost his job, got fired, but we were always giving the tithe. And it was a balance that, that God says, can you trust me? Um, and I'd say God can be trusted. So, and the key is this, and when we give, do you give out of your spare change, or do you give from a heart of deep thankfulness of what God has done? And that poor widow gave out of a deep heart of all that God has given her. So that's an encouraged life lesson for you as you think about going forward in life. So they're then in, in Jerusalem. The temple will become a key part of our text today. Um, and the key is this. Uh, the temple, you might recall, uh, as they kind of come to Jerusalem as a city, David wanted to build a temple. Uh, but God said no. There was too much blood on his hands. And so he was able to rejoice bringing the Ark of the Covenant in Ultimately, his son Solomon built the temple, and it was amazing. Now, I've not seen it. You haven't seen it. But as it's described, it was unbelievable. Um, of course, we know Jerusalem was kind of up on a hill. It was chosen as a military city because it's hard to attack when you are up on a hill. You have the upper ground position. And it's the temple we were at is the highest part uh, in Jerusalem. Um, but one of the things we know is that the temple was thought, well, that's where God dwells. But of course, we know God can't be contained. Um, but the Jews saw Jerusalem and the temple as kind of their safeguard. Because if God is there, certainly the temple will never be destroyed. All right. As you're able, please stand. Uh, Luke 21, verse 5. Um, here are these words of Christ, again, in the midst of Jerusalem. Uh, and they're approaching, by the way, his Passion Week. Again, Luke 21, verse 5. I'll read through verse 19. Some people were talking about the temple, how it was decorated with beautiful stones and ornaments dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for the things you are admiring, the time is coming when not even one stone will be left upon another. All will be demolished. They asked him, Teacher, when will these things happen? What sign will show that these things are about to happen? Jesus said, watch out, that you aren't deceived. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the one, and it's time. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. These things must happen first, but the end won't happen immediately. Then Jesus said to them, nations and kingdoms will fight against each other. There will be great earthquakes and wide-scale food shortages and epidemics. There will also be terrifying sights and great signs in the sky. But before all that occurs, they will take you into custody and harass you because of your faith. This is so encouraging. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will provide you with an opportunity to testify. Make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. I'll give you words and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to counter or contradict. You will, it's even better, 
You'll be betrayed by your parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. They will execute some of you. Everyone will hate you because of my name. Still, not a hair of your head will be lost. By holding fast, you will gain your lives. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We're not sure. Maybe are you thankful? Are you? Be seated. Once again, I'll tell you, don't blame me. Blame Jesus. He's the one who said it, right? This text is to be a text of encouragement, but also a reality check. Now, for those of you who've read the Old Testament, um, you will know that many thought for a long time that having the Jerusalem and having the temple and being God's chosen people, certainly God will not let harm come to us. But unfortunately, that was not the case. See, here's the problem. The Jews had become really excited and thankful about the idea of being God's people, even though they weren't following God's ways. And so here's the thing, the temple, which was beautiful and a great, great place of worship, all of a sudden they were more excited about the temple than they were of God. And so God um, has eventually the northern kingdoms falls, and then the great king Nebuchadnezzar, we heard his name from the Bible in 586, comes and sacks the city and destroys the temple. It's hard, maybe it's not hard, to realize the utter despair of the people when that occurs. They had thought God had abandoned them, God had left them. They, they, they were so counting on the fact that they had God's temple, surely no harm can come to us. And here's the awkward part of the Old Testament. God is saying God enabled and equipped and empowered Nebuchadnezzar to do it. You see, Jerusalem and the temple had become their God, and they had forgotten Yahweh. So, eventually they, uh, they go into exile. It was not fun. Eventually, God allowed them to bring it back in the second temple by Zerubbabel. He does replace um, the old temple in 515. It wasn't as grand, they say, as Solomon's first temple. But as you describe it, still they had sheets and plates of gold. And when the sun would shine on it, it would literally set ablaze the whole, the whole valley all around the, the area there. Um, but again, it was a classic case of be careful of where you put your faith and your trust. Um, some of you know that we've been preaching on the lectionary. The lectionary is a three-year cycle. Um, and I was looking at some old notes, and I saw that I had preached this uh, sermon for the first time in November of 2001. Remember what happened in September of 2001? Um, again, growing up in the United States, I know many of you have served in the military, been all over the world. I've been visited places. Um, but certainly I had heard of Pearl Harbor. Uh, my uh, grandfather, my dad's dad, was actually on his way back. Their ship was... Um, was Hurt. They were trying to get from Pearl Harbor. They, they weren't there, but they were close to it. Um, but really, since I was a kid, and we had the September, we had the uh, attacks, of course, in Timothy McVeigh and the the bombing in Edward Murrow Building in Oklahoma City. But in some regard, I think Americans, I at least, as a you know twenty year old, thirty year old, nothing kid, um, the thought of our buildings coming down in America that, that happens other places. And I'm sure many of you who remember on September 11th knew there was a great deal of alarm and panic 
Uh, all of a sudden, now we were vulnerable to these great big towers in New York to come down. Um, I think this also reminds us, where do we put our security? Where do we eat? We put our hope. Um, I'm not predicting a big invasion from Canada. They're far, far too polite to invade people, right? Um, but I do think we have to be careful. Do we put our hope in the United States? Um, let me say this. I think the United States is wonderful has done many wonderful things in and around the world. But let me tell you this, the kingdom of God does not come through a nation. It will come through the church. And so while we are citizens in this America, our true citizenship is to be in the kingdom of God. And therefore, we put our trust in that. Because if you put your trust in a nation, that is not good. To this point, all nations have crumbled. But God's kingdom will endure. And that's the invitation for us today. Um, well, Jesus says that the temple is going to be destroyed. And they're like, we want to know more. And what's fascinating about Jesus' explanation is ultimately he tells them, not like when it's going to happen, but how they are to live and prepare themselves. And really, you have this message coming to disciples. And again, we've been on this long journey of what it means to be a disciple. And as you heard, being a disciple is not always fun. Right? This is not the awesome church growth text to get the masses to come. Hey, be a Christian. You'll be persecuted. Yay! Um, but Jesus began to tell them, watch out for these things. A couple of things he says. Watch out that there will be those who might deceive you. Now, again, um, I think today... Uh, I both love the internet and it makes me nervous, right? We have lots of data, but very little discernment. One of the things that we kind of have lost in our culture today is the role of the expert, right? Um, we have WebMD. Why do I need a doctor? Be careful. <laughs> um, and I think today uh, we are prone. And, I, and we don't live fearful, but I'd say live discerning. Um, live in ways that we're a lot, because Christ says many will come, proclaim many things. And Christ will say, they are not uh, of myself. Also, he says, this is a big one. There'll be earthquakes and pestilence and fearful events, signs from heaven. In fact, what we know, what Jesus described, actually happens about 45 years later. So the thing Jesus predicted actually happened. Now, they, can they still have them potentially? Um, but here's the thing Jesus is saying to us, and the one thing I want to leave with you as I begin to head out and send me out to pasture, um, when Jesus talks, he wants you to not be afraid. Crazy stuff could happen, right? The good news is we're in Mountain Home. No one knows where we are. Well, we have the Army base. Some of you are not so good here, the Air Force base, yeah. Um, we're in Idaho. People compete with Iowa. Whatever, it's fine. Um, but the key is this, and this is a great warning for Christians. Too many Christians are far too afraid. Now, the reality is this. Christ is going to go on and describe events that are not going to be fun and could be disturbing. But even within that, Christ says, are you willing to follow me all the way to the end? For it's in following me that you have hope. Um, but putting your hope in this life is not where your joy is going to be found. So the danger is this. How often we as Christians are we handcuffed by fear? 
Um, one of the great blessings on being old is remembering great books from our past. Um, I uh, remember the book from 1988, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come Back in 1988. You remember that? Some of you are alive in 88, right? You missed that book? Too bad. We have, trust me, it's there. Go Google it. Don't read it. It'll disturb you. We don't think it actually happened. I remember it was the year, the, the, the Japanese year, the dragon was that year, every 44 years. And there's all these things there. Anyway, but then 1994, a new book came out, The Lord Returning This Year. Um, by the way, this is my little professor hat on. When anyone tells you when they know Christ is coming back, they're probably wrong. They are wrong. Um, Christ even said, I don't know. So if Christ didn't know, you don't know either. But here's the good news. We are not to be afraid of it. We're not to fear it. Um, one of the great temptations in the church, um, and I think we're mostly over it, maybe not, um, we had a um, kind of a heretical group called Gnostics, which I might, I might whiteboard now. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, Gnostics. It's actually where you get the word knowledge from, right, to know things. But the Gnostics, they thought, you know, this earth was terrible, our bodies were bad, so their goal is to kind of escape this life, to get out of it. Something curiously about Christianity um, in regard to the end times. About the beginning of the 20th century, most of Christians were called post-millennialists. Now, post means there's the millennium kind of described uh, in Revelation of when Christ will return. Post-millennials kind of affirm that Christ would come back after a thousand-year reign of Christianity. And so at the beginning of the 20th century, there was lots of optimism. The Industrial Revolution was happening. Technology was growing. There was a magazine created called The Christian Century, to which they believed that the whole world would become Christian in the 20th century. Didn't quite happen, um, but the great optimism was there. And so everyone thought the, the kingdom is good. Christians should be at work in the world, helping to reform, redeem creation, and it was wonderful. And then... We had World War I. Um, uh, I'm not a history buff, but I did come across um, this podcast, uh, Hardcore History. If you're a history buff, I encourage it. It was, a, it was basically a World War I. He doesn't claim to be a professor, but you can tell he's read every book written on this. World War I saw a level of atrocity the globe had never seen. The technology of warfare, they had no clue what it would do with the Gatling gun, other um, nerve gases, other kind of technologies. You know, they had had, we had bad battles. I mean, we had our own civil war here, terrible, brutal things. The amount of atrocity of World War I is hard to describe. Um, hundreds of thousands of people dying in battles in a two-day period. Hundreds, I mean, unbelievable. The world was in shock that the world would get to this point. And out of that positive optimism, the Christians are like, oh. And here's what was awkward really about World War I. Um, you, a lot of wars to that point have been over kind of um, religious issues. And so what happens in World War I, in fact, um, one of the movies I watch my students have them watch, you should watch it as well. It's called Joy You Know Well. I invite you to watch it. It talks about how on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, on the front, many of the soldiers uh, stopped fighting. Um, and then it kind of goes on to say once they stopped fighting and they kind of played soccer and hung out and shared food together, the Germans and the Brits and the Irish um, all across World War Front, uh, the front there, because they were 
all Christian. I mean, you know, well, relatively. And you had Christians killing Christians. It's a great movie. It's, I'll let you watch the movie, how it worked out there. But the atrocity was mind-bending. United States, we kind of get out of World War I. Uh, we have a crash here. And in any optimism that remained for hope for the world, World War II stomped it out. Toward many Christians after those world wars, instead of thinking there's going to be a thousand-year reign, and then Christ became more pre-millennialist, which says, look, the earth's going to hell, Christ come now. The reality is this, and Nazarenes don't take a stance on, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial. Um, but here's the thing, what happened when I grew up as a kid, after the World Wars, of course, the Cold War, where you'd worry about the Russians coming, they were ironically our, our allies in World War II, but all of a sudden, fear, fear, fear. So the 70s created all of these weird and awkward movies, the gospel blimp, right? About how you want to be Christian, because fear was the issue there. But ultimately, Christians lost their hope. And I'm convinced, even today, we were captivated and addicted to fear. And one of these Christ is saying here is that, look, you're going to hear crazy stuff, right? And when you hear it, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Now, the irony is, of course, as you've read the rest of the passage, and it got worse before it got even better. Bad things are going to come to you, but the invitation is you are not, you're invited to not be afraid. We would say again, in regard to Jesus' text that uh, Josephus, the second century historian, noted that really all the things Jesus predicted kind of came true in the rise of Nero. Um, but again, these words were only about them, but also for today as well. But then Jesus, who's talking to his disciples, and again, we've been on a long journey what does it mean to be a disciple? Jesus said, yeah, it's going to get hard. You're going to be persecuted. They're going to take you into the synagogues. They're going to question you. It will not be fun. And he had this weird line. It was hard for me. Don't plan your defense ahead. I'll give you words to say. And of course, we see this, don't we, in the, in the Acts. Again, the disciples, remember, they're about three steps above the three stooges right, in the, in the Gospels, constantly getting it wrong, messing it up. And one of the things that you can see in Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes, these uneducated men are brought before the Sanhedrin. And they'll say in Acts, where they get this wisdom, they're simply fishermen. So we see this happening. But again, here's that analogy about this temple being destroyed. In some regard, what Christ is also preparing them for, um, while that was be devastating, in some regard, Christ was also saying, um, but I am the true temple of God. And the level of shock and horror for Christ to be killed was coming. And even there, they were invited to not be afraid. So Jesus says to them, things are not going to be fun. And then he says, it's going to get worse. Um, your friends and your family, they're going to turn on you. Some of them will execute you. Congratulations, you're the winner. I remember, um, I may have told this story before, but, you know, it was a while ago, maybe three months, and you probably remember last week, right? Um, uh, I had the privilege in high school of going to Russia. 
Now, I, the, what I knew of Russia was mostly from the uh, Rocky IV movie, right? No Rocky IV, Ivan Drago. Anybody? Rocky IV? Five of you. Congratulations. Anyway, um, I'd imagine Russia was simply America over there, right? I figure, you know, they're like the, like the power that... And so I went to Russia, and I went there kind of right um, uh, at the end of Gorbachev and before Yeltsin. It was in 1990 or 91, 92, somewhere in there. And so there was a great kind of political turmoil over there. Actually, it, might, it was somewhere in that, the revolution area, but it was still, Yeltsin was kind of coming in. It was basically, we were ironically a Christian, from a Christian high school. We could go and sing and give concerts at the public school. We couldn't even do it in the United States. It's kind of interesting. Um, but I went to Russia, and I was struck. Uh, to me, it was in some places way worse than things I had seen in Mexico. In some areas, it felt kind of third-worldish. Um, and it was gray, and it was depressing, and it was just, uh, you just felt this oppression of despair. Some of you have been there, and, and again, this was in the early 90s, and they were kind of coming out of communism, although, yeah. Um, I remember we, we were, they brought us to a church. On the outside, the building looked plain and ordinary and boring. But inside, it was the most amazing sanctuary I'd ever seen. All in wood, but just the kind of um, the beautiful architecture, beautiful, actually, the two- or three-story room. Uh, it, was, it was unbelievably gorgeous, but it was kind of under wraps. Um, as we talked through a translator to the folks in that church, they showed us the rooms where they would hide the children when the guards would come. Many of them had had uh, aunts and uncles and grandparents who were literally shot outside the church building for professing their faith. Often they would say, the Christians here who want to affirm Christ will go out and shoot you. And I remember being struck about that and thinking, I wonder when I go home to America, if it became a capital crime to come to church, who would be there? Would you all be here today if you're going to be killed for being here? I'm sure you would. It struck me, though. Um, for it to become, and I'm glad it's not, let me give a paraphrase, but I wonder what church attendance would be like in America if we'd be killed for being here. See, the other thing I've noticed, not about you Christians, but the other Christians, is that we want a Christianity where we give out of our spare change. When it gets too costly, I'm out. Jesus is inviting them into the real road of Christianity, which says, are you willing to give everything for this, or is it simply a Christianity based on convenience, when it's comfortable? Jesus said, to be a disciple, it is going to be hard. And if you read that text carefully, there is a hope in the end. But, but first he does say, and some of you might be killed for this, but in the end he says, None of you will be lost. Because again, true life is found by putting your faith and hope in God. So that even if your life is taken, your life will be in God. Now again, I'm really glad it's not illegal to be a Christian in America. Right? It's a wonderful thing. Uh, my concern, though, is I think that has enabled some of us, not you, the other Christians, right, to have a Christianity that's very convenient and comfortable and easy, and when it gets hard, I'm out. 
Jesus says you're missing out on the full depths of letting God be your King and your Lord. So that come what may, even if it means laying down our life, that's the invitation of Christianity. Not that we don't like our life, not that we're seeking to be killed. The whole idea of martyrdom is not wanting to be killed. But here's how I would say this. If you are afraid to die, you're missing out on the gift of Christianity. So once you're no longer afraid to die, then you're able to truly live. Now again, it's not about simply wanting to die or seeking death, but it is. And I think about this. As I look at politics, people vote and politicians know this when they instill fears in you. Fear of that person or that person or this. And both, both parties do it because fear sells and fear gets out the vote. As Christians, we are never to be motivated by an act of fear. We are to be thoughtful. We're here to be conscientious. We're here to be wise, for sure. But we're not to live out of fear. In another gospel, Christ has these great words from Matthew chapter 10. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, as Jesus is giving this not fun teaching, by the way, yeah, your family and parents, everybody, they're going to not like you and somebody's going to kill you. The invitation is, what does it mean that Christ is your Lord? And that no matter what comes, again, we don't seek persecution, but also, um, and this is the problem with the church, right? Too often we want Christ to do things for us, but as we see in that last passage, to find Salvation is be willing to take up your cross and follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Sometimes we want a spectator Christianity. This is when I write the book Why Christians Hate Jesus. This will be in the notes that we in there. We don't like this passage. It is not fun. It is not comforting. But Christ is saying to the disciples, "Look, hard times are coming. Decide now: Are you going to be in or are you going to be out?" Now again, I'm thankful that in most parts of the world, to be Christian is not under the threat of a gun. We do have friends we know in parts of the world where that is the case. But the place where the threat is not there, the question is, yet how central is our faith in our Christianity? What does it mean that we are giving God out of our spare change versus saying, God, you get to have all of me, my hopes, my dreams, my futures, See, my life really is in your hands. See, here's the invitation from Christ. You want to find your life? It's not in surrounding it by comfortable, easy possessions. And Luke is just blatant over and over again. Riches are a means of self-destruction. Because all of a sudden you think, oh, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty comfortable. I have a pretty good kingdom going on here. And I'll give, you know, token conveniently. And Christ says that is a life that's already missing out. True life is found as you recognize your desperate need that the only place of hope and security in your life is in God. Houses come and go. Jobs come and go. Our loved ones, we love them, and sometimes we'll all pass. But our hope must be in God. Now, the goal is not making you callous to this world, right? 
Not to be unfeeling, but it is to say this, true hope will be found in trusting in God so that as our life is in Him, where you live short or long, your life is found and grace and hope and joy is there. So what does it mean for you this week to give not out of your spare change, but to give God the very best of who you are as an act of faith and trust to say, God, I need you, I trust you, my identity and hope is going to be in you and not in things of this earth. And once you can do that, you then can care properly for things of this earth as God enables us to do so. I know, Jesus says some awkward things. But the disciples, when this text is being written, coming about, many of them had already been killed for their faith. So in some regard, they would testify today, as the saints on gold, that that was where life is found. So today it's not about will you die this week for your faith. But what does it mean that you're willing to say, God, I trust you completely. I put my hope in you. I know some of you are facing some hard things. While it's not the worry of being killed for your faith, there are issues of relationships that are broken, finances are not great, health is not awesome. And so again, don't hear this text to call us to be immune and cold to the needs of this world. But it is to say, our hope is way bigger than our circumstance. And I think of Debbie's comment earlier, the testimonies of God is especially present in our times of greatest need. My encouragement is for you, when things are okay, then God, can you still be that desperate for God as well? I invite Nate to come on up as we're going to sing today. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you this day. Um, Lord, to be honest, while we said thanks be to you for this text, some of these words were not fun to hear. But Lord, I pray you would help us to see the life offered in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, this is the text given to Jesus' disciples about the road ahead. And while not only the physical temple fell later, well, these disciples were about to see your son, Jesus Christ, be killed, which was the horror they could not imagine. But yet, Lord, we proclaim that death does not have the final word. Lord, you are a God of new life and resurrection. So, Lord, I pray today that for some in, this, um, in our congregation today who are discouraged, who are defeated, who are living in despair, that they would hear, as Pastor Debbie proclaimed, they are not alone. You are present there to comfort and equip and bring us hope. Lord, some of us, Lord, our lives aren't perfect, but our lives are comfortable. And Lord, my, my, the challenge you have for me and for several of us here, what does it mean, Lord, that I'm still that desperate for you? Lord, don't make my circumstances getting worse to then make me wake up to know how much I need you. May even in this place where life is blessed, to keep me desperate. Because then, Lord, you invite me to take my life and find those in my world who are hungry and hurting and lost and live in close proximity to them. Lord, we pray we would not give out of our spare change. We would find our life in you as we give our lives away, picking up our cross and seeing that is the road of life. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment to know what even that means this week. Lord, we're going to trust in you as an attitude, and trust that you'll be with us all the way to the end. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing today.